A few years ago, the famous novelist and poet Wendell Berry spoke from this pulpit as a part of our Building Community Book by Book program. I was assigned to go to the airport to pick up Wendell and his wife, and on the way out there, I realized how terribly nervous I was about making small talk with this intellectual and literary giant. I tried to think of something intelligent to say to him, and I remembered that one of his professors was the famous novelist Wallace Stegner, who taught him at Stanford. And so on the way back in from the airport, I asked him, tell me about Stegner, about Wallace Stegner. What, what was he like as a teacher? And Wendell Berry said, all you need to know about Stegner, you can read in a little essay that he wrote called Letter, Much Too Late. He said, you've got to find it. It's in this little book. And I have since read that little essay, Letter Much Too Late, probably 10, 20 times. Letter Much Too Late is a letter that Wallace Stegner wrote to his mother. He's three months shy of his 80th birthday when he writes it, and he's recalling his mother's death some 55 years prior when he was just 24 years old. He remembers sitting next to her bedside, watching her take her last breath while the night nurse had taken a break. He said just before she died, she sat up in her bed and she said, which way? And then a few moments later, she said, Wallace, you were a good boy, Wallace. And his name was the last thing she said before she died, and he was haunted by her words because he never really felt like he was worthy of that phrase, good boy. The letter is a reflection on his mother's difficult life and their sometimes complicated mother-son relationship. He writes, I never got around to telling you in your lifetime how much you meant to me. And he writes about how much he learned from her example, her strength, he remembers that horrible period in her life when she fled an abusive marriage which left her in such dire poverty that she had to turn over Wallace and his brother into the care of an orphanage. And he describes better days in their family life when she inherited $1,000 from a great-grandparent and she used all of that money to buy a piano for Wallace and his brother a piano which they refused to practice. He laments how much he regrets never living up to her image of his goodness. And then he says, you know, she can't really be dead because her love has continued to shape me all these years. And he ends his essay like the song we just sang. He ends it by saying, I just want to hear her singing one more time. Today's scripture can also be thought of as a letter much too late. Written more than 55 years after Jesus departed the earth, this section in the Gospel of John is part of what's known as the farewell discourse. It spans several chapters as Jesus prepares to say farewell to his disciples, and he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet and he tells them, I am the vine and you are the branches. And then he begins a long prayer on their behalf. And in the passage that we read this morning, we are overhearing 
what he prays to God about his disciples. We hear what the departing Christ has to say to all of us in the church. Like Stegner's letter much too late to his mother, Jesus's words are both intimate and close and also distant, far distant. For he writes, I am no longer in the world, speaking from a far off place. And then he writes, I am coming to you as though he is clearly connected not only to God, but to this community of faith, his beloved friends. And the purpose of Jesus's letter is much like the purpose of Stegner's letter, to create some kind of joyful, deep, ultimate connection. With intimacy and tenderness, Jesus prays for his joy to be made complete among the people that he loved. How? What will bring this joy of Christ into the lives of the beloved community? How do we get joy, let alone complete joy? How does the joy of the resurrection of the Christ bring new life into the community of faith? Or is Easter something that just happened a few weeks ago on the calendar, a bygone relic? C.S. Lewis remarked that pleasure is often within our power to achieve, but joy never is. Mother's Day, you know, is a perfect time to recall how sometimes joy simply arrives unbidden, and yet at other times there is a bitterness, a sadness, and a longing that lingers. Joy is not something that we can just pull off the shelf for purchase. Sometimes we spend our whole life longing for joy. And so how is it that Jesus believes that in his prayer, our joy might be made complete, that we might resonate with him and the living God in the way that they resonate one with the other? Jesus claims that while he was present among them, he protected them and he guarded his disciples. But now that he's gone from the earth, he's praying for God to protect them and guard them from the evil that they all know is in the world. He acknowledges that their lives in the first century are full of risk and danger and evil forces to reckon with, that they, like us, live in a culture that is often inhospitable to the truth and the love of God. And so he implores God to protect them. There is no escape route to joy, only a way through the difficulty with the now absent but still present force of God present among them. My brother-in-law by marriage is the son of a woman named Johanna. She was born in a small town in Germany at the end of World War II, Johanna found herself a single mother caring for her six-month-old infant son, Chris. She and another girlfriend wrapped their infants around them in blankets and began the six-week walk back into the territory that was now governed by the Allied forces, trying as quickly as possible to escape notice of the Russian soldiers that were controlling Berlin. There were many other refugees fleeing at the same time, and so they had to figure out a way to survive. 
One of the tactics they developed was to milk cows in the field and then boil the milk so that they would not get the hoof disease that the milk sometimes had and they could feed it to their infants. And they also learned a way to go into a barn and get a chicken and wring its neck without it ever making a sound so that they would have enough food to feed themselves on the journey home. They wanted to escape notice both of the owner of the barn and the chicken as well as the other refugees. And so they fled on foot. What they thought would take two weeks ended up taking six weeks before they were safely home. And then Johanna traveled to the United States and she married a farmer in Iowa. And when she was safely settled, she sent for her now toddler son, Chris, to come and join her. And that little boy that she carried in her arms across the fields in Germany became a fighter pilot in the United States Air Force and retired as a full colonel. Jesus prays for protection in the same way that a mother named Johanna spent her life's energy protecting her son, Chris, so that he too might one day find not only safety, but joy. Jesus does not pray for us to be removed from the difficulties of this world. He prays for us to serve that world, the world he came to serve, with the same joy that he served and loved in this world. But joy comes not just because we are safe, but also Jesus prays that all of us might somehow reveal the character of God. The, the scripture says, God, I have made your name known to the people you gave me, but name in the scripture means your essence known, your character known. I love the intimacy with which Jesus speaks in this letter called the Gospel of John. Jesus wants his friends not only to be safe, but to intimately connect with God who loves them so passionately that they, too, can experience God's presence here on the earth. Joy comes when this holy character of God arises within their daily lives. But we hesitate, don't we, to reveal that character of God? Sometimes we don't imagine that God's character, God's essence, is coming to life within us. I love the story told by Wendy McDonald. She shared it in the Harvard Divinity Bulletin. Wendy was invited to a farewell party, a retirement party, for one of her colleagues who was retiring at age 64. He had planned to retire at 65. He had been a missionary director in Southeast Asia. He had served in the mission field, but he had received a devastating cancer diagnosis, and he decided to retire a year early. At the party, the friends were shocked to see how emaciated he appeared, a spectral version of his former self, and they waited to see what he would say. And instead of giving a typical farewell speech, he decided to share a story about the time he served in Sumatra. And as he got ready to leave the community of Sumatra, he went around and visited with his friends to say goodbye, knowing that they would never see each other again. And one friend came out during this goodbye, and he said, when we say goodbye to a friend, we get to take off our masks. In Indonesia, masks are an integral part of the culture, and taking off the mask is the moment in which a person becomes more real, 
more authentic, more truly the person God created that person to be. And so when Jesus prays for the people to reveal the character of God, he is inviting them to take off their masks and to reveal the love of God, which is the true character of their own lives. This he prays because he knows that this too will lead them to joy. Sometimes it's easier to keep the mask on, even with those we love the most, even with those inside our own families. We sometimes fail to reveal the depth of our love or the truth of God's spirit alive in us for fear of exposing the fragile nature of our own hearts. My mom was that kind of mom who would stay up all night long sewing in her sewing closet a new dress for my sister or me to wear to the dance that coming weekend. But she was not the kind of mom that ever looked at you directly in the face and said, I love you, sweetie. I'm so proud of you. Not that kind of mom. If my sister or I had the occasion to receive straight A's on our report card, she would look at it and, and set it down on the kitchen table without uttering a word. Why, someone would ask, why wouldn't you make a fuss? She said, my girls are capable of making straight A's. They don't deserve extra praise for that. I remember once when I was probably about nine years old and I went to a wedding and there was another guest at the wedding who was the school secretary in the school where my mom taught second grade. The secretary came up to me and she said, oh honey, your mom talks about you all the time. She's always talking about your piano recital and that Mozart piece you played and your dance group and how they won the talent show at the school and how you're always volunteering at the church and still receiving straight A's on your report card. And I remember standing there and looking at this woman I had never met as she yammered on, thinking to myself, I think my mom likes me. <laughs> and it seems silly now, but I simply wasn't able to read her cues. For sometimes love comes in ways we don't expect. Sometimes Jesus loves not in the ways we want, but in the ways of grace, like a surprise out of the blue. Jesus writes a letter, much too late, so that we will know that we are God's beloved. Maybe we can't really seek joy. Maybe it just finds us. Jesus prays that the people may be one as he and God are one. He prays for unity, not for perfect life, but for relationships to dwell among them. He prays for his joy to be complete in them. And when I hear this, I remember that our relationships, one with another, are not optional. They are not superfluous. If essential joy is to be tasted on this earth, then relationships are essential. Jesus does not pray for Joe's joy and for Greg's joy and for Dan's joy. No. Jesus prays, my joy will be complete among them joy between them. Jesus could not imagine praying for individual joy. Jesus prays for unity among the people who claim this name of God's character. He prays that they may be one 
as he and God are one because he could no more imagine us not being one than he could imagine him being the Messiah and not being connected to the God of heaven. Fanny Green lives in Tampa, Florida. Fanny recently told her story to StoryCorps. Fanny's mom was getting to that stage in her life when she was struggling to let go of living in her own home but not quite ready to move into an assisted living facility. One day she would tell Fanny, I think I should move. And the next day she would say, I'm not leaving this house. And it flip-flopped back and forth and Fanny didn't know what to do and so finally she sought advice from the mother of her best friend. She said, what should I do? And this wise older woman advised her. She said, mothers can never resist their children when they simply bear their hearts. So don't go in there trying to be strong for your mom or to make her do anything. Simply look her in the eye and say, mom, I need you to help me so that I can help you. When she said that, her elderly mom replied, I will go, but I am so scared. Fanny put her head in her mom's lap and began to cry. But mom didn't cry. She put her hand up underneath her chin. She turned and looked to the side as she always did. And when Fanny finally stopped crying, her mom said, we better go ahead and do this before I change my mind. <laughs> what about us? Where is joy waiting to be made complete in our relationships with others here on this earth?